had a recent conversation with a member of my extended family and learned that he had been recently diagnosed as pre-diabetic. In other words, he had the tendency, potentially, to get the disease called diabetes. And I didn't know too much about it, so I asked him. And he said, well, it's, you know, it's not good. And we sort of expanded that a little bit. Turns out diabetes is, a, is an imbalance in one's blood system. Your blood sugar level is off. And that might not seem like a lot, but it's a big serious deal with potentially serious complications. If your circulation is off, if you get too much sugar in your system, it can mess up your organs, your vital organs, the things that you need to live. It can mess up the circulation to your extremities so that those start to malfunction and not function. And, and it's something that you really have to pay attention to. And while my relative did not have diabetes, he was predisposed to type 2 diabetes. And so I said, well, that's the bad news. What's the good news? He said, the good news is that you can do things to prevent diabetes from actually occurring in your body. And I said, well, what is that? And it boils down to two things. You can change your diet, less sugar, basically, and you can get more exercise, which increases your circulation. So fix your diet, increase your exercise, and you can stave off the onset of type 2 diabetes. I said, you know, kind of for, forever, yeah, potentially, if you make these life changes, you won't get that. And I thought, how interesting that this is sort of that field called preventative medicine. In other words, my relative has a measure of health. He's in good health at this point. But in order to preserve that, he has to do some things. He has to do some things that promote that health and prevent disease. And he's, he's doing him, he looks great, he's a lot slimmer, he's working out, he's playing tennis. I'm like, wow, you're putting me to shame. So there's a little bit kind of a memo to self, make sure that I'm trying to do those things. But here's the deal. When we do things that promote our health, they also prevent our disease. When you look at the Word of God, when you get closer to Him, through His Scripture, and particularly this week and next week, we're going to look at the Proverbs, because the Proverbs are things that promote our spiritual health, keep us healthy, keep us on track with who God says we are and what he's calling us to do and prevent us from spiritual disease. The kind of disease that comes from separation from him, the kind of disease when that sort of sugar of the world gathers in too much of our system and starts to envelop us and starts to make us a lot less functional. And I know even as I'm speaking this now, some of you are actively wrestling. You have type 2 diabetes or type 1, and it's a serious thing. But you're taking steps to make sure that you're in a place of health. So, as I said, we're going to look at Proverbs, and specifically I want us to look at Proverbs 3. Because there's so much in that chapter alone over these next two weeks that will really help us understand what it means to live spiritually healthy and prevent spiritual disease. So if you have your word, would you turn with me to Proverbs 3? This week, we're only going to look at the first eight verses. I'm reading out of the NIV. They will appear up on the screen as if by, by Dave Weatherford up in the booth. Thank you, David. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of Proverbs. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. 
Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. This is our reading for today. Let's just give this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us here into your house, into your sanctuary, into your presence, where your spirit lives and reigns. Lord, have your rule over each one of our hearts, our minds, our lives this morning. Lord, help us to understand what it means to gain a better measure of health in our relationship with you. Lord, help us to know the dangers of things that we may be doing that are spiritual diseases, things that have drawn us away from you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now open up our mind. Give me your words to speak this morning. To your glory be it, and under your protection we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. As you can see already, that these proverbs are pretty straightforward, I'm, I'm, and, and they kind of come in, in pairs of verses. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 to start. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life for many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Uh, already, I, I just want you to start to see the form here. There's, there's a command for us to do. What is that in, in verse 1? There's some, it starts with something we're supposed to do. Not forget God's teaching, but to keep his commands. Those are actually two ways of saying the same thing. And then verse 2 tells us the blessing that comes from that. What's that blessing? That it will prolong our life for many years and bring us peace and prosperity. Something for us to do, and then a way that God responds. This is sort of the structure of the Proverbs in, in Proverbs 3. And so we, it, it, Solomon is doing that so that they're easily accessible for us and easy to memorize. We'll talk about that in, in just a moment. But just to zero in on what does it mean, you know, we know what it means to keep God's commands. I mean, we, that's probably not new news to you guys, to me. The, the challenge is, and I want us to look at, we keep the commands where? In our heart. It's good to memorize scripture. It's good to read your word. It's good to have those devotional. But we want to make sure that we know the location of where these scriptures are supposed to go. They're supposed to go from what we take in in our mind into our heart. In the Bible, the heart is the seat of action. The things that you, why do you do what you do? It's because of your heart. Why do you value the things that you value? It's because of what's in your heart. Why are your emotions tuned to a certain frequency, if you will? Oftentimes that has to go, has to do with things in your heart. So the heart is the seat of our will, how we act, how we respond. And so when Solomon is saying, take my commands into your heart, he's talking about so that they're activated. Too often, even as believers, they stay up here. We're good on Bible trivia. We can quote all kinds of stuff. We, you know, we, we have favorite passages. But if it's not changing the way that we're actually living, if it's not giving us that boldness, that courage, the ability to be God's spouse, the ability to be God's parent, the ability to be that person at work, it raises the question, is that in our heart? And so Solomon is saying the, the place where these commands really need to reside is in your heart. Don't forget the teaching. One of the best ways not to forget something is what? Is, to by, is by doing it. Right? If you ever try to learn a skill, take up a musical instrument, learn how to play a sport, they can give you all the diagrams, they can show you all the videos, but unless you start doing it for yourself, you're not going to learn how to really take that in. And so we have to take God's commands into our heart, and then we have to act out 
of that place. We have to do the things that we know God is calling us to do. And time won't permit me to kind of detail that here, but I think already God is speaking to you particularly about areas where you need to be living out of that place of following his commands. And then look at the blessing that will prolong your life for many years and bring you peace and prosperity. God here is acting much like a loving parent is. When you say things to your kids, even if you know they don't want to hear it, it's the eat your broccoli message. No, I want to eat you know those fruit snacks again. I want another box of juice. I want something else. We know that there's times when the, your child will get that, but they need to eat healthy as well in order to be the person and have the good health that they're supposed to have. They need to go to school. They need to do homework. Why? To develop the mind that God has given them. Those are good things. They're not necessarily comfortable things, but a loving parent says those things to their child. And sometimes on and on and on. Can my parents, can I get an amen? You know that that's oftentimes, you are on message for quite a while. Days, months, years, right? And even when they're adults, you're still kind of on message sometimes. Grandparent, you know, if you're older, sometimes those kids have got to grow up and live. They've left home. Let them, let them live the life they're going to live. But we have got to, you know, we've got to be focused while they're young, speaking to them with God's truth, raising them in the way that they should go, says our Proverbs. When, they, when we do that, then they will become healthy. They will have a life of many years. Sometimes, you know, you're telling your kids, watch out for this because this is dangerous. Don't do that. You know, oftentimes kids think you're killing their fun. It's like it's fun to drive 85 miles an hour on a curve, Dad. No, it's not. It's really dangerous. But the mind of a child doesn't know that. In many ways, because we're still this side of eternity, we have that childlike, I'm going to do what I want to do kind of mind. And God, as a loving parent, is saying, no, don't do that. It'll prolong your life. It'll give you peace and prosperity. Peace in Scripture is that idea of shalom, where everything is in order. Peace in your relationships. Peace in your heavenly relationship with God your Father. Peace in those relationships around you. That doesn't mean everything is all 100% great. That's why Paul says in Romans, insofar as it's up to you, be at peace with everybody. But as far as you're concerned, you have peace in your relationships. Prosperity. God delights to give us the provision that we need to achieve the objectives that he's assigned to us and to be generous to others. He does not give us prosperity because it's all about me and because I want to show off and I want to brag about how good my God is. That's prosperity gospel. And we brag about prosperity gospel, we brag about how good God is, but when you peel behind the, 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 you know, the thing, you unpeel those onion layers, you know it's really about me. No, the prosperity that we're talking about here is God just showing up to be that loving, lavish, lavish generous God. So see that fundamentally in this proverb, as in the others that we'll read, is the relationship between us and the Lord at its heart. He's calling us to do things that he's designed to give us life. And as we do those things, as we live them out, his blessing that he wants, as any kind of loving parent would want for their child, is something that is realized in our life. The other thing I want us to notice just in these first two verses is what Solomon is up to. Scripture tells us that Solomon was the wisest man of his age. No one was wiser, it says in 1 Kings 4, than Solomon. And, and if you read 1 Kings, you see that that gift of wisdom was given to him by God himself because Solomon asked for it. And so Solomon, the wisest man, is telling us 
What? He's instructing us with God's wisdom. He says, my son, that may mean his physical kids that God blessed him with. It might mean his spiritual children. But what's going on in that? He is teaching the younger generation. He is not leaving it, not taking it for granted, not leaving it random. He is saying it is so important that the next generation gets God's truth into them. That I am teaching them in a way that's really accessible. Look how easy Proverbs is to just kind of grab hold of. There's something we're supposed to do, and there's a blessing behind it. It's kind of bite-sized if you want to think of it that way. There's not really the heavy theology that you might find in Job or Romans 5. I mean, these are good. But when you look at Proverbs, it's kind of like this little snack pack of truth. I want to grab it, take the, take the, you know, the, the commands into your heart, and then you'll have long life and prosperity. Then you'll have peace. It's like, thank you, I can, thank you. I'll just look at those two verses for today. So Solomon is teaching his kids. And by extension, we're to teach our children. You know, the next generation will not know the Lord unless we teach him, right? Unless we teach them, teach them purposely, teach them diligently, teach them faithfully, teach them prayerfully. And how do we teach them? We teach them by saying, these are the commands of Jesus Christ. This is who Christ is. This is what he came to do. He came to die for you and to raise you up when he comes again. Now we say those words and those are important and we have to be faithful about that and we have to be uh, consistent with that. But we not only teach with our words but even almost more importantly we teach with our life. And we run into problems when kids begin to see a misalignment between what we're saying and what we're doing. Some of you may have grown up in a household like I grew up in where my parents from time to time would say, do as I say not as I do. Okay, kind of convenient for them, not super helpful for the kids growing up, right? No, if you're a godly parent, a godly grandparent, a godly parent figure, you have to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Because believe me, those kids are looking at you. And even if you don't have kids in your home, if you're just alongside of them, if, you're, if you've got some neighborhood kids and they see you going off to church and they see you with your big Bible, do they... That they see you there on Sunday morning, how are you the rest of the week? Are you friendly to them? Are you greeting them? Are you saying, I'm glad to see you? Or are you like, get off my lawn? <laughs> like, well, okay, kind of a little incongruous when it comes to the love of the Lord. What we do has to align with what we say if we're to be good and faithful teachers. And so Solomon's saying, my son, Keep my commandments. Keep the commandments of the Lord. And it'll go well with you. Let's make sure that things are aligning with what God says. The stakes are high in this. You know, there's a, there, sociologists are kind of always coming up with new categories of people. We have millennials. We have X-Gen, GX, boomers. You know, there's all kinds of categories of folks. There's now a new category of church people. The people that are quote-unquote de-churched. One guy who did the study out of University of Northern Colorado says there's, by his estimation, 30 million people who have left active participation in a church in America. They haven't left, from their perspective, a relationship with God. But what they have left is connection with God's people. And when he starts to look at all the reasons, the reason that stuck, uh, stuck me in my mind the most was the fact that there's this misalignment between what people are talking about in the love of God and what these folks are experiencing 
in the church that they belong to. They hear about the love of Christ and his forgiveness, but they get judgment and condemnation. They hear about the fact that everybody's got gifts, but they can't participate in any kind of meaningful way. They hear that the church wants to give, but it seems to be pretty insular and rarely leaves its premises. They hear all these things about what the gospel's supposed to be, right doctrine, but the practice is far less motivated by Christ. And so they say, why am I going? We don't ever want to be a church like that. We don't want to take for granted the life that God has put into us as a church. We want to stay and remain before the Lord in prayer, at times on our knees and times of fasting, and say, Lord, where are you moving us? And as I think about how God has shaped us as abundant life, I, I praise him for the level of outreach that we're doing. I praise him when I just began to think of how, how important it is to teach this next generation, how God has given that to us as a church in ways that are probably more abundant than one might think. If I just look at the, the ministries, the way that, that people are focused on children out of this congregation. I look at it started our partnerships. <clears throat> you look at Real Options, which helps women who are in this crisis pregnancy work through what it means to keep that child, that boy or that girl that's inside of her. And to raise, you know, God has a plan for that boy or that girl. When they begin to conceive that, that's one of our partners. Or New Creation Home where moms are learning how to take care of their kids and learning how to earn a living so they can provide a little bit. Or Bayshore Christian Ministries. These are partners of ours that are invested in the lives of children that they might grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Just looking at our own ministries inside of here, Safari Kids, where it's not about just rolling up a VeggieTales video or something like that. We want to make full-on disciples. And we know that we have this limited opportunity called childhood to do it. You probably have heard, if you remember, if you are here long enough to know, remember Pastor Danielle, who oversaw our, our ministry for our kids, she used to say that something like 90% of adults who profess Jesus Christ, who profess Christ as an adult, came to faith as children. There's a unique time in the life of a person called childhood where they're open to whatever is going to be put in their heart and in their mind, and we dare not shirk that responsibility. And I'm thankful that Abundant Life has just sort of given, been given this ministry through Safari Kids, through our GX, through Mom's Time Out that helps moms on a Thursday, through our ministry to Juvenile Hall to kids that are incarcerated, who may not have had any hope until somebody from that ministry came and said, let me tell you about the God who provides hope. Let me tell you about who Jesus Christ is. About Kids Club. You just heard about Kids Club. About, um, we just talked about Help One Child, which is a way to reach out and participate and help have kids come in who are part of the foster care system. And you get, as a vessel of love and mercy from Jesus Christ, to provide them some level of stability, some level of introduction to who Christ is. It goes on and on. And I'm like, thank you, Lord, that you've shaped abundant life like that. Yeah, let's just give them a hand praise. So it's not a brag so much as it is a, a privilege. It's not a boast so much as it is a calling. I mean, there could be other things that we could be asked to do. We're not big on overseas missionaries. We have some that we support who we love. They're working in some tough places. And uh, you heard Chandra Chap come here a few weeks ago. She's ministering in Cambodia in some pretty dark circumstances. We're thankful for that. But you can probably count on about one hand the number of overseas brothers and sisters who are there 
that we're supporting, that we're active in. That just hasn't been something that God has expanded in terms of what he's called us to do. But he's clearly called us to the kids in this area and to what's around us. And we need to be just faithful about that. And so I'm thankful for Solomon. I'm thankful for the Proverbs that he gives us. I'm thankful for the calling that he has for us to be teachers and to live that out. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me. It says this, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Remember our pattern. Something we're called to do. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind those qualities around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then here's the blessing that God provides. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and of man. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Do you sense the passion that's just in that? It's not like, hey, you know what? Love and faithfulness, kind of a good idea. You know, if you got some time, you know, some other attributes. No, let love and faithfulness never leave you. It should be the kind of thing when somebody looks at you, they see the love of God in you, on your face, in your actions. They see the faithfulness of God through what you do, how you say things. Why does he pick love and faithfulness? Because these are attributes of who God is. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful. Revelations 19 tells us Jesus is called what? Faithful and true. These are attributes of God. And if you've been in this church for any length of time, you know that we realize that God's calling on our lives, each person's here, is to reflect who Jesus is more and more. And what better way to do that than out of a sense of love and of faithfulness? Faith, love in, in Old Testament not only is, is that sense of kindness. Paul unpacks it in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, he's describing what love is. He says love is patient. Love is kind. It thinks the best of somebody. Doesn't dog them out. Doesn't run them down. Doesn't think you know, critically of them. Isn't keeping records of wrongs. But believes that they are more and more becoming like the Lord. There may not be great evidence to that. But that's okay. Your love is actually motivating them. Ever have a coach or a teacher believe in you despite evidence to the contrary? Oh yeah, thank you. Hopefully you have. And you found if you were privileged to experience that, you know how motivating that was. You know how changing that was to you. This is what love in action does. It says, I don't see you for kind of that earthly, human, fleshly side. We all got that. I see you for the person that you're becoming day by day in Jesus Christ. That's the love in action that's being talked about. And when you see people like that, don't you naturally gravitate towards them? Don't you know, I mean, there's people usually in some kind of, uh, in your office, hopefully, or in, in a ministry that you're, hopefully everybody in your ministry, but in a ministry who just sort of has that extra bit of love and you just like, I, they're, they're the kind of people that are approachable, kind of people you feel really comfortable starting to talk to, kind of sharing with. You don't know why, they just sort of are like that. Somebody who's like that at your office, they just will always have people near them, connecting with them. When I think about that, I think, when I think about, well, who, who's that? I was, as I was thinking through this, I, uh, Fred Degree came to my mind. I don't know if Fred's here today. Fred oversees, if you know Fred, he's the director of various ministries, including our jobs ministry, including our jail ministry. His, he and his wife Cheryl have been doing this faithfully for years. 
And just knowing Fred on staff for all the years we've been together, he's just the guy that embodies this and personifies this. I asked him when he goes to juvenile hall, what do you do? I mean, how do you, how do you connect with these young people, these young men? And he says, you know what? I just look for something that is something I can call out as good or as a blessing. Something really easy, like your hair. That's, you know, you've got a big smile. You know, there's not a lot to choose from when you're just, you know, meeting somebody for the first time. But God gives him wisdom to express some small way God's love for that young man. And out of that starts a relationship. Out of that starts a godly connection that those guys, if they don't know it, they'll know it soon enough they truly need. And that's Fred. He's not just doing it in jail. That's just who he is. In fact, there's one time our staff has a Christmas lunch tradition where we get together and we give somebody a gift and then we say something nice about the person we gave the gift to. One year, Fred got a gift from a woman on our staff and I can't remember for the life of me what she gave him, but I do remember what she said about him. And she said, when I see Fred, I see a man who loves. I see somebody who's full of God's love and you just want to be with him. I'm like, I'll never forget that. I'm like, I would love somebody to say that about me. Maybe I'll pick her next year for the gift exchange. I don't know. But then it raised the question, what would they say about me? What would they say about you? What, what would one word, you know, if I asked somebody, what's one word that would describe you, what would they say? Is it some aspect of God's character, love, patience, uh, peace? Or maybe, you know, maybe you're the resident Pharisee. Man, knows his word, making sure I'm doing all, all the right things. Always has his clipboard in his hand. Always checking me when I'm you know, not doing this and not doing that. Sometimes as parents we can be like that. But, you know, parents, let's catch our kids doing something good. As well as providing boundaries and instruction. But what would somebody say about you? Is it love? I hope it is. That needs to characterize us more and more. It's so magnetic. It's so attractive. It has a gravitational pull because that's who Christ is. What's the other thing? Faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Very simply, faithfulness is what? Letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. Does that characterize you? Or maybe you're somebody who says, hey, I'll be there in five minutes. And people are saying, all right, I'm just going to add a half hour on to that. So 35 minutes, they'll be over for dinner. You know, that was an easy illustration to come up with because I still struggle with that, but I think I'm like down to 10 minutes when I say I'm going to be there. 10 minutes of leeway, hopefully my family needs. But we all have those places where we're optimistic, where we say one thing, but either we don't mean it or with the best of intentions, we don't follow through. God is faithful. What he says he will do, he will do. What he says will be, is and will be. And Jesus is the same way. They don't, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, God, he does not vacillate. He does not change his mind. What he says he will do, he does. And if we're to be followers after him, we need to be the same kind of people who, peop, uh, who do what we say we can do, who we are going to do. What happens when we are people who are faithful? Then the blessing is that we have favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. When you are faithful like your heavenly father, you're pleasing him because you're like him. You have that family resemblance. When you're faithful, men, people, and your job will rise up and call you blessed because I'll tell you, people at your work, your bosses, your managers, they are looking for faithful, reliable employees. They're looking for people of integrity. 
That's another word of saying, another way of saying faithful. John Maxwell writes a lot about leadership, says integrity is the quality most needed to su succeed in business. And I remember that I used to have sales teams before I came uh, onto staff vocationally full-time, and that was kind of my high-tech career. And there were some people whose business forecast you could absolutely take to the bank. When they said, when she said, she, it, Julia said it was going to happen, it happened. When Brian said it was going to happen, it happened. I'm like, great, Brian says, it's, you know, these things are going to have 100%. And then I got Pete over here, and Pete is like Mr. Optimistic. You know, it's pouring rain outside, but he says the sky is blue and the sun is shining. And so in business, that's not a good thing. When you don't have the deals, don't tell me you got the deals. Don't tell me it's going to come in because I know it's not going to come in. And so when Pete tells me it's 100%, I'm discounting that. And especially because it's Pete, it's not like 50% discount. It's like down to 20% discount. It's like, Pete, I love you, man, but you've got to get a grip on your business. And if you don't, we're not going to have this conversation for a whole lot longer. Not because I don't like you, but you just have to be more reliable. That you're, you know, it's not good for you, it's not good for the company, it's not good for the team. On a number of fronts, that's just reality. But if you're the kind of person at work who can be counted on, when you tell your management you're going to do something, you get it done. When you tell your teammates that you got it, that you got it, they will love you. They will appreciate you. And it's just the way that God has called us to be. If you're not there, by the way, you know, look, sales forecasting is an art. It's certainly not a science. You have to say, look, this is what I hope I can do. This is what I think I can do. If somebody says, hey, can you commit to this, and you don't know that you can commit to it, the, the first words out of your mouth should be, I'll get back to you. Not, yeah, only to text them later. Oh, I'm sorry, this came up. Some of us have that reputation. They, you know, some, some people take a pool in your office about whether you're going to show up when you say you show up or do what you say you're going to do. That's how bad it can be. But we're, God isn't like that. And if you, if you claim his name, he's not calling us to live like that. We can be and are called to be different folks. We are called to be faithful people. And faithful, I'm just using a workplace analogy, but the applications are in your home, they're in any of the callings, they're in your marriage that God has for you. Some of us are in places where we don't think we're being used well enough, either at work or in ministry. I, I talk to people from time to time and say, I just don't feel like my gifts are being used. I don't, I don't feel like I'm having an impact. And so one of the things I kind of try to explore a little bit is, are you being faithful in the assignments that you've been given? What does Jesus tell us at the end of his parable, the shrewd manager in Luke 16? He concludes with this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. But whoever is dishonest in very little will be dishonest with much. Some of us, if you've got an assignment that you think is kind of beneath you, you've got to make sure that you're doing that one well before God would entrust you with something greater. Why? It's not fair to you, and it's not going to be fair to the other people. Do that assignment that you have well, no matter how kind of menial it seems, no matter how much beneath you, no matter how old school that is, and you will find God blessed by that. You will find honor in the sight of God and in the sight of men. Man, let's be faithful in the small things because that's, that's how God gives us bigger things to do.
Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Trust, and some of you guys know this by memory. I'm not going to ask James Broadway to quote it because I know he knows. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight or he will direct your paths. Proverbs 5 and 6, some of you guys have underlined it, underscored it, highlighted it, cut it out, put it on your mirror. That's good because this has so much meaning for how we are to follow after God. How do you know what God wants to do in your life? How do you know when you, you get to the end of your life, like Paul says, I've been poured out as a drink offering, I've fought the fight, I've passed the test, I've finished the race, now there's in store for me a crown? Don't we all want to be able to say that? I think if you ask Paul why he was able to say that, he would say, because I gave the Lord everything that I am. He died for me and I gave him my whole life. I trusted the Lord with my whole heart. I did not shrink back. I did not uh, you know, disobey. I trusted in him. I didn't lean on my own understanding. I let him lead me where he was going to lead me. I submitted to his leadership and he directed my paths. And if you know anything about the life of Paul, you know how tricky that was at times. Where he was shipwrecked where he was beaten, where the times there was a conspiracy to take his life, and it was only because God had divinely arranged for his nephew to overhear the plot that he escaped. So he had narrow escapes, and he was beaten numerous times from the officials, from the mob, from all kinds of places, and yet he knew that he was in the safest hands possible just by giving his life to the Lord, which is why we find him in the middle of jail in Philippi, having been beaten still praising God, singing hymns of praise with Silas. He's a person who gave his whole life to, the, to, to Jesus. He's a person who trusted the Lord with all his heart. It impacted how he decided things. But we have it backwards, don't we? Too often, we, we trust things of this world more than we trust God. We, we we're trusting in relationships. We have that wonderful romantic dinner. The music is soft. The, the food is delicious. Everybody's smelling great. And it's so wonderful. In the course of the evening, you find out he's got a job and he's not living at home. And you're like, this is the guy for me. Only to find out weeks later that he's got some trust issues. And you start to hear the words, it's complicated. And you know, oh no, it's not that complicated. You're not the guy for me. Trust things come up. We put it, we give our hearts away too easily. Or how about that, that dream job? Sometimes I talk to, you know, guy or two, I know he's got a dream job, and the dream job, oh, this is so great. It's just the work I was designed to do. The boss is wonderful. It's, it's well paid. The team is great, and, and there's no travel. And then you, you check in with him about a month later. It's like, oh, I hate that job. I don't know what happened. I mean, the, the, the work is boring. My boss is controlling. The team has a crazy person on it. You know, they, they free, froze all salaries. They're doing a reorg. I'm, I'm going through TSA check lines every other week. And I had a mentor when I was young in my career who cynically kind of said, there's two jobs, the one you interview for and the one you get. And so just, you know, I don't know if that's a proverb, but just kind of file that away. Things change is the point. And we dare not put our trust in the things of man. And we have it backwards. We do that or think of an investment opportunity. You know, the list goes on. But somehow when it comes to the Lord, we start to hedge. We start to say, well, I don't know if you're trustworthy. I don't know if I can give you my whole life. What? <laughs> Think about it. Does that really make sense? The God who made everything that we know, 
who made all of creation, we were talking about that in, in last month, who sustains it all by His grace, who before He even created anything knew that you would be on the planet at this time in this age, and if you know Him has created you in His name to do good works, knows exactly every day that He's given you in this life, knows every hair on your head, you think that God doesn't know how to lead your life? You think that your understanding, your two cents, is really going to make a difference to what God wants to do? It's crazy. That, that's nuts when you think about it. It doesn't promote any health. It is, you know, we want to do preventative medicine on that one. You know, you get, if you're pre-diabetic, you've got to eat right. You can't say, oh, man, I can eat this whole box of Theodore Raisinets because it's got the double whammy of chocolate and raisins. It's awesome. We tell ourselves all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And, and the doc says, no, you're pre-diabetic. You can't do that. We tell God, here's, here's, let, let, let's just sort of talk about how we're going to live my life. No, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Verse 7 makes it even worse. It says, don't be wise in your own eyes. When you start to be wise in your own eyes, you know what you do? You start to shut off God. And you shut off the people that He's brought into your life to give you wisdom and give you the things to get to the next place that He's planned for you. The next set of good works. The next level of knowledge where you of love with Him. When we become wise in our own eyes, that's what happens. And so we want to make sure that we're not in that place. That rather... We are trusting Him with all our heart that we're submitting to Him. And then what's the blessing? And He will make your path straight. He will get you through whatever obstacle is in front of you. He will help you overcome whatever challenge. He'll make sure that you are not being overwhelmed. There is serious stuff that comes against each one of us. There's serious stuff that comes against every church that proclaims the name of Jesus, ours included. And yet the Lord is faithful to get us through if what? If we would depend on Him with all of our heart. Don't try to lean on your own understanding. You don't got enough understanding to lean on let alone try to help somebody else lean on your understanding. No, just stop. Lord, help me. Make that your prayer. Ask Him for what He... Ask Him to help you in that area. Ask Him for what you need to make good decisions. Let me just apply this passage to decision-making because too often I find people not using all the tools that God gives them to make godly decisions. You know, the Greek word for decision is crisis. And we use crisis like, oh no, it's a crisis. But usually a crisis means I've got to make a call. I've got to make a decision. The, you know, the, the issue isn't that these come into our lives. The issue is what do we do when they do come in? And so we need to make godly decisions. And sometimes I just find people trying to get a shortcut. What's the shortcut? Well, I'm just going to pray, and when I get a peace from God, then I'll know what to do. God, what do you want me to do? And, and, and our spirit, tell me what you want me to do. And I think that is fine as far as it goes. It's got some decent theology behind it, and the Holy Spirit indwells us. Praise God. He is our comforter. He is our counselor. So far, so good. We do need to be praying to the Lord whenever we face a decision. And we do need to ask Him what He wants us to do for the big stuff. You know, you may pray about what to wear. Hopefully not. Just wear what's clean and what looks good. So, um, but sometimes we feel on the big things, we, wanna, we do need to be prayerful. But what I find sometimes is that people, that's all they do. 
And they don't use the other things that God has said or you need for decision making. They don't use his word. They don't use godly counselors. They don't use times of prayer and fasting where you're getting serious about that. They just say, Lord, give me a peace. Just, just tell me what you want me to do. And that's childish thinking. And here's what's even worse about it. It's dangerous thinking. How often have you talked to somebody who you know, they say, the Lord just gave me a peace about, and you're like, if you read scripture, you should not have a peace about that. You know, if you're not man and wife, but you're taking part in some of the benefits of man and wife, and you have a peace about that, Scripture will not let you have a peace about that. So if somebody says, I got a peace, and you know it's not part of what God's Word says, you said you should not have peace. You should be deeply disturbed about that. What do your godly counselors say? Well, I haven't really asked them. Why? Well, because I have a peace. People put way too much on that, and what's actually going on is it's spiritualizing your own selfish desires, your own motives. The Proverbs, uh, Proverbs says this, in, in 21.2, it says, A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord knows our motives. He knows, frankly, our ability to deceive ourselves is amazing. Even as Christians, the enemy always wants to talk, always pushing us to get, tell ourselves lies. And the only way that a lie can really stick for a Christian is if we find some kind of gloss, spiritual gloss to put over it, called, I just need a peace. And we're told to test the spirits. Test that peace. Test that peace by God's word. Test that peace by people who are in your life who love you and care about you. Test that through a time of prayer and fasting. Be totally open before him and say, Lord, show me your way. When those things line up, then you know that you're on God's path. Some of you drove up Highway 101. If you came up from the San Jose, you passed Moffett Field. And Moffett Field is a naval air station. It's got landing lights, because it's south to north landing typically. It's got landing lights that start on the Sunnyvale Golf Course and go on into the field. If a pilot is landing at night and he is unfamiliar with that, he needs to line up those lights in order to know the right way. If you've got a major decision that you need to make, you need to get those things in alignment. God's Word, God's godly counselors, time of prayer and fasting, God's timing, as well as a peace and affirmation from the Holy Spirit of God. You line those things up and you'll be up on the right path. So God's, we want to trust Him with all our heart. What's the challenge though with this? Is there a challenge that you're sensing? You know, have I really shared in one sense anything that's new in terms of knowledge? Maybe a little. For most people, it's going to be a reminder. But here's the challenge, and here's the, the great irony. Solomon, the one who is, no one was wiser than, who's writing this for spiritual children and his own children, actually, in the end of his life, doesn't follow this advice. Doesn't follow what he knows the Lord's commands are. If you know anything about it... Uh, Solomon's life is described in 1 Kings 11. He gets off track. He starts to marry women from the other tribes that God says you're not allowed to intermarry. And he says, I don't, it doesn't tell us how he justifies it. Maybe he didn't feel a check in his spirit. Maybe he just said, you know, I just had a peace. But somehow, maybe it was politically expedient for him to do that. But he didn't get control over it. And he goes and he marries 700 wives, it says. And what was the problem with that? Verse 4 of chapter 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. 
And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And although he'd forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so God puts Solomon under judgment and says, your, your kingdom will be divided, but not in your lifetime. It is a tragic end to a man who started with all the wisdom. He had all the knowledge. So the issue isn't knowledge. The issue is what? The issue is power. How did he not have the power to do that? Two things. One, he's this side of Jesus is Holy Spirit, so he didn't have the Holy Spirit in him. That is such a blessing for us as believers, to have the power of God dwelling in us, but also the power of God dwelling in this church. Because the full power of God is not in any one person. The fullness of God, the array of gifts, the array of experiences, the array of talents, comes when we come together. And if you look at the company that Solomon started to keep with all his wives and all their crazy relations, with all their nutty spiritual practices that were ungodly, that's the company he began to keep. And as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, bad company corrupts good character. Or as you've heard from this pulpit from time to time, your crowd determines your course. If you want to make godly decisions, if you want to have the power to actually carry them out, you need to be with company that is like-minded. You need to be in your small group or this body of believers here on a Sunday with people that are wrestling with the same things you're wrestling with, who are encouraging you along the way, who are saying, I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm encouraging you. You heard last week Santos quote, Ephesians 1, I'll read it again because it's, it talks about the power when Christians come together. I pray that the eyes, Ephesians 1 starting in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably what? Great power for us who believe. The power is the same as his mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above any other thing in creation. That kind of power is here. Paul was saying that kind of power is in the Ephesian church. I pray for its amplification so that all of you would know that. That kind of power, we pray, is here at Abundant Life. We pray for its amplification that all of us would know that. In your small group, in your singles ministry, in your oasis, in the women of worth, pray that God's power would be manifest. Why? Because that's what we need in order to live the life that he's called us to. There is no other way. If you're starting to get off track, if you're starting to get away from good company, from godly brothers and sisters, then, then I want to just kind of raise a red flag and say, get back in with people that are like-minded. If they're not like-minded, challenge them to be so. Guys, I think we're not really serious about the things of the Lord. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit more. When we're with like-minded people who encourage us day after day, as long as it's called today. When we don't forsake the assembling of others. Why? Because we need that. We need it like we need oxygen. Fellowship is not optional. I see some of you out there now who are leading groups, who are in groups. You know that it's not optional. You know that you don't get gold stars for attending growth group. What you get is the power of God to to actually act out of that place in the heart, to do the things that he's called you to do, to show yourself faithful that he might multiply your impact for time and eternity. That's why we meet together. That's just one of the reasons. So time requires us to kind of leave it there 
for, for this week. There will be some other application areas that we talk about next week, other ways to explore this. But I just want to, to close with this. Proverbs, if they're going to activate in our lives, if they're going to promote our spiritual health and prevent spiritual disease, need to be acted upon. And so I'm just going to ask, we're going to take a minute of silence here. And in that moment, that minute of silence, I just want you to ask, Lord, give me one or two things that I need to do to promote my spiritual health with you. Or give me something I should stop doing in order to uh, get, you know, so that I'm not getting further away from you. I don't know what that is. I trust that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you this, after, this morning. So um, I'm just going to start our minute in just a moment, and then the minute will be up when I pray, and then we'll stand, okay? All right. Just draw to the Lord now in silent thought, prayer, asking him to speak to you.